Okay, today we'll be in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, 1 through 3 today. Um, I had planned on doing Isaiah 7 about the promise of Emmanuel. And man, that is a complex chapter. And with everything else going on, I realized yesterday afternoon, this is not going to happen. And I wanted to really give it its due. Um, and so I decided to, to change course here a little bit, take a little bit break from the um, series on promises, but still focusing on uh, the incarnation, the, the Christmas Advent season. Um, so we will turn today to First John and get to Isaiah 7 next week. So uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for its reliability that we can come to it and know that it's inerrant and inspired and that uh, we may submit to it even beyond our own capacity and our own own willfulness, but that we submit to you and we'll be happier as a result. Uh, We pray that you lead us to Christ and help us to find joy in him today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, we do not have to celebrate Christmas as Christians. In fact, some Christians would say you shouldn't celebrate Christmas. Uh, However, if we're going to celebrate Christmas, we should have a sense of why. Judging by the vast amount of consumerism we have to trudge through this time of year, I don't think the culture has a Christian understanding of Christmas. I think that's too controversial. Uh, And judging by kind of the swamps of vague sentimentality that we have to wade through this time of year, just a general, Jesus is the reason for the season. Yes. Uh, or, or, you know, inaccurate. <laughs> the, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Um, I, I think that the church at large is failing to lay hold of the true significance of Christmas. And then, judging from the coldness and distraction in my own heart, I get the sense that even when we do know the significance of Christmas, we fail to properly apply and rejoice in those truths. So this passage directs our attention to what is probably the most prominent facet of this Christmas story, and that is the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus becoming man. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, took on flesh. In this passage, the incarnation is is so significant, and it actually becomes the test for orthodoxy. 
So it's important. It is definitional to Christianity. And I think we all share the conviction that those things that are definitional to our faith ought to from the content, uh, form the content of the practice of our faith. Dox, doctrine leads to doxology. So this passage directs our attention to the significance of the Incarnation, and today, today we'll spend a few moments um, exposing the passage itself, the meaning of the passage. Then we'll look at the doctrine of the in- Incarnation, and we'll conclude with some application. Um, and this all in the hopes that we will head into the Christmas season uh, with a greater awareness of its significance, and thus a greater capacity and desire for heartfelt worship, heartfelt doxology during this season. So let's begin by looking at this passage, First uh, John 4, 1 through 3. He begins, do not be, uh, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Uh, now, if we kind of have a, a common, shallow reading of this verse, it's kind of, we might assume it's saying, if I have a, a dream or an encounter with another entity, then I should test it. I should test it to see whether it's from God. This passage is actually more about false teachers than it is about other entities. Um, for he says, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So this is about testing teaching, testing teaching. And the worldly spirit which would oppose Christ. Uh, this, this is true, of course, that these teachers are influenced by the forces of evil. But, and that, that's the spiritual battle that rages behind the, the scenes. Um, I was chatting with somebody this week for my job. They were asking me, how can we discern true Christian teaching? And of course, this passage came to mind for me. So I shared it with them. And and the person, I think they're from Lebanon, if I remember right. And and they said, don't Muslims believe that Jesus was in the flesh? That's a good point. So what what, what do we do with that? This points out uh, some other common misconceptions about the passage. First is that um, this is not the only test. This is a test. John even says a few verses later another test. He says, if anyone who does not listen to us, the apostles, they are not from God. So this is not an exclusive test. It is, in fact, the whole counsel, the whole gospel that shows whether a spirit or, or a teacher is true or false. So this is one aspect of it. As Paul said, if anyone teaches another gospel, let them be accursed. Muslims, though they believe in a physical Jesus, they do not believe in the deity of Jesus. They don't have the full gospel. Uh, this morning in Sunday school, Michael talked a little bit about docetism. Uh, also, we might call it like proto-gnosticism. This is this idea that Jesus was divine and he appeared to have a body. He had a phantom body, if you will. Uh, kind of like a hologram. <laughs> he was not really there, but he appeared to be there. This arises from this desire to say that all material is bad and the spiritual realm is good. And we need to be rid of the material realm if we're going to achieve a, a higher plane Another misconception 
I should say that that docetism is what specifically what John is responding to in this verse. That's why he gives this test. Um, another misconception is that this test is some kind of a kryptonite. Like, if you suspect that my teaching is somehow out of line, you can ask me this question, and I won't be able to answer it correctly. I won't be able to lie. You'll, you'll have I'll be like the witch in the Wizard of Oz. I'll just melt. This passage doesn't remove the need for discernment. False teachers can lie. Uh, Kenneth Copeland, prosperity preachers would say Jesus came in the flesh. Mormons would, JWs, Muslims. The problem is they're teaching and preaching another Christ. It's not the Christ that came in the flesh. It's a false Christ. So we need to have a full-orbed understanding of the gospel. We need to develop and maintain discernment. We need to grow in Christian maturity so we can distinguish between good and evil. And then verse 3, This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Again, this is just another misconception that we're going to be dealing with one man, the Antichrist. Um, anyone who is against Christ is an Antichrist. And the spirit of the world is that Jesus did not come in the flesh. So all of this centers around uh, Jesus coming in the flesh. This passage centers around uh, the incarnation. And so we're going to look a little bit at the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus, the God uh, man, the second person of the Trinity coming in flesh. So verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Uh, the reason that, or one reason that teachings like docetism arise is because it is scandalous to say God became a man. That's why many heresies exist. Most Christological heresies have to do with this doctrine of the hypostatic union, the union of God and man. Either we have to reduce Christ's humanity in some way or reduce his deity in some way to make this work. We we have to make it more palatable, more tempered. But this is the extraordinary beauty of the Christian message. We believe that God, the second person of the Trinity, the divine person, took on flesh. That's what makes it a good test for the false teacher, is it's beyond comprehension. It it cannot be rationalized, though it is ultimately rational. Uh, It's almost too good to be true. One of my favorite... um, Teachings on the hypostatic union or the incarnation comes from the Belgic Confession, and I recommend you look there. Chapter 10 is very good, but uh, Article 19 on the two natures of Christ is really a great explanation of the hypostatic union. I'll just read that for you. We believe that by being thus conceived... The person of the Son has been inseparably united and joined together with human nature in such a way that there are not two sons of God or two persons, but two natures united in a single person, with each nature retaining its own distinct properties. Thus his divine nature has always remained uncreated without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth. Christ's human nature has not lost its properties, but continues to have those of a creature. 
it has a beginning of days, it is of finite nature, and retains all that belongs to a real body. And even though he, by his resurrection, gave it immortality, that nonetheless did not change the reality of his human nature. For our salvation and resurrection depend also on the reality of his body. But these two natures are so united together in one person that they are not even separated by his death. So then, what he committed to his father when he died was a real human spirit which left his body. But meanwhile, his divine nature remained united with his human nature, even when he was lying in the grave. And his deity never ceased to be in him. Just as it was in him when he was a little child, though for a while it did not so reveal itself. These are the reasons why we confess him to be true God and truly human. True God in order to conquer death by his power, and truly human that he might die for us in the weakness of his flesh. I just think that's one of the most beautiful explanations of that. I know it's a lot to comprehend, just me speaking it to you, but and there's probably a lot of questions about that. But I, I just find it to be so amazing that the, even in his death, even in the grave, his divine nature and his human nature were not separated. That, that hypostatic union is that the two have come together not to be separated. I told... Michael, that my title for the bulletin would be In the Flesh. And I told him that my title, Temptation, was Con Carne. You heard <laughs> With Meat. I thought it kind of humorous, but also accurate. That, that's what the word means, incarnate, right? Carnate. Con Carne. Perhaps a little crass. Although I fear that's how we might feel about the Incarnation sometimes. I feel we might feel that it's a little bit crass. God Almighty, Sovereign, Transcendent Lord, Creator of all things, I am who I am, taking on flesh. I mean, that's absurd on one level. As one modern writer has pointed out, how can it be that the one who created all the planets and the stars would come to be covered at one point with amniotic fluid? That's a stark way of putting it. Or he, he, he would come to have eye sockets, armpits, and nostrils. The God of the universe. Or the one who tire, never tires, slept, the source of eternal joy, wept, the God of glory had hunger pains and the creator of, of water became thirsty. I mean, that's a, that's a mind warp. That's beyond human comprehension. And it's truly a gift of God's spirit to, to comprehend that, to believe that. Which is really the point of this passage. Yes, it's about discernment, but it's more so about the unfathomable nature of the gospel and the great gift of spiritual illumination to, to finally see the truth of the gospel because the truth is apprehended spiritually. You notice that theme in, in the following verses uh, after 1 through 3 in 4 through 6 when he says, Little ch children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. 
We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So as it's as much a test for false teachers as it is a test for us. Do we believe this? Do we really believe in the incarnation? Do we have spiritual apprehension, not just intellectual apprehension in a sense, but we really truly believe for ourselves in the hypostatic union? Because it's not easy to believe in, in and of ourselves. Has this become a life-giving truth to us? Or do, do we quibble about it? Not, not overtly or expressly, but in practice, in thought, in emotion. God can't done, have done that for me. God can't have become a man for my sins. I'm too, too bad. He's too high. He's too transcendent. As I said, next week we'll get into Isaiah 7 and the promise of Emmanuel. And it's interesting in that passage, God offers King Ahaz a sign. And Ahaz refuses the sign, saying, I, I don't want to test Yahweh. I mean, how pious of him. What a noble gesture. Good on Ahaz. He spied God's trick. Ahaz was a fool. This was false humility. This is false piety. It was a 53-foot semi-tractor trailer, floor-to-ceiling load of baloney. When God offers you a sign, you take the sign. When the triune God of all the universe offers you hypostatic union, you take the hypostatic union. We really believe the transcendence of God, though. We really believe in the holiness of God. We really believe in the ickiness of human flesh. There's no way he could have done that. You can see how this attitude arose and fed into the notion of this Gnostic or Docetistic higher knowledge. We're on a higher plane of knowledge. Hear me philosophize about the great Jesus who came as a hologram for us thus saving us from our icky flesh. Yeah, what a good gospel. The machinations of man are, are altogether too small. Now, what does all of this mean uh, for us? A few days ago, I saw a cartoon illustration. It was titled, uh, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, Abridged. There were three panels um, this is lightly edited for more palatable language, but the, the first panel, Scrooge is kind of stooped in the street, muttering, Christmas is terrible. Second panel is Scrooge in his bed with three ghosts over it. You're terrible. The third panel is Scrooge upright. Yay, Christmas. Instead of three ghosts, past, present, and future, which, by the way, must be properly tested, I want us to call our attention to incarnation, past, present, and future. That's a better Christmas story. Incarnation, past, present, and future. Uh, I'll actually have you turn to a few passages here for this. Um, first is Hebrews 2, 10 through 15. Hebrews 2, 10 through 15. And after this, we'll go to Hebrews 4. So keep your finger in the area. 
Um, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So that's remembering incarnation past. That's what he did in the past. As we read in the Belgic Confession, our salvation and resurrection depend also on the reality of his body. The incarnation was absolutely essential for our salvation. If he was not human, he could have neither lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law for us, neither could he have died as a sacrifice for us. A phantom Jesus cannot fulfill the law for flesh and blood humans. Phantom Jesus cannot suffer for us. Phantom Jesus cannot die a true death. So this Christmas season, as you enjoy the traditions of Christmas, and yes, it's okay to have traditions, even cultural ones, When we're doing this, let's remember that this divine oddity is here. Let it stick in our brains. Remember that the coming of cute little baby Jesus is divine in meatment. Jesus con carne. I grew up hearing this particular word that described irreverent or flippant sacrilegious humor. You, you Dutch people may have heard the word sputten. That's sputten. If you make a joke that's not kind of sacrilegious, that's sputten. I don't say these words like in meat meant to be sputtenous. Uh, I use them because they mean the same thing as our theological word, incarnation. But I want to draw our attention to, to the beauty and also the paradoxical nature of what we're dealing with here in the incarnation. It's the glory of our salvation. It happened by God taking humanity to himself. And it had to happen that way. There wasn't another way. This is a grace beyond human comprehension. So we remember incarnation past and then incarnation present. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Then if you jump over a page or two and... uh, Hebrews seven, twenty-three through 25 The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he who holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. That is incarnation present. Right now, Jesus is in flesh with the Father. One of my favorite lines in the Heidelberg Catechism, and I have to bring it up at least once in Advent and several times through the year, is where it says, we have our own flesh in heaven. It's shocking enough that God would take on human flesh, but that he would stay in human flesh forever is amazing. That there's human heart beating, human blood coursing through veins being charged with oxygen from human lungs with the Father. That, that's amazing. It's comforting. We have a real representative, a human representative in the presence of God, interceding for us, praying for us, standing for us as our head. A, a phantom Jesus would be useless in heaven. We might as well elect a squirrel to represent us before God. So again, this Christmas season, as you enjoy the traditions of Christmas, let this stick in your brain. Jesus is no phantom. He, he has not returned to spirit. He is risen and he has ascended to heaven. He is mankind in the presence of God, on which reality stands our own righteousness before God, even now, every second of every day. And on which reality you can come into the very presence of the living God to pray and to worship. Because Jesus is there, we can come with confidence. So enjoy incarnation present. And then third is hope in incarnation future. Second Corinthians 4, I can let you turn over there. Second uh, Corinthians 4, 12 through 5, 5. Paul says here, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, this is in verse 12, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise with Jesus, us with Jesus, and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. That is the hope of future incarnation. Based on Jesus' resurrection in the flesh, our flesh will be raised on the last day. The Shorter Catechism asks in question 37, What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? 
The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves until the resurrection. And then 38 asks, What benefit do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed to the full enjoying of God to all eternity. When we go to work, we expect to receive a wage, a compensation for the suffering that we endure or the effort we extend at work. At this, at times this life may feel like there could be no sum that could ever compensate for what I'm enduring. But what Paul says is that our afflictions cannot even compare to the weight of glory we will receive. The rewards will far out exceed compensation. Like a, a dust mite on a DOT vehicle way station scale will register higher than our sufferings compared to the eternal weight of glory. That's because when we arrive in glory, we will receive the compensation due to the Lord Jesus Christ and not our own. That which He has earned will be granted to us. So this Christmas season, we will have plenty of suffering. Our celebration will be tainted by sin, by loss, by physical distress. However, let this stick in your brain. However wretched it may feel at the moment, it is but light and it is but momentary. And that we can say with Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The chief part of that inheritance that we will receive is the eternal presence of God. That we will spend time with the risen Lord Jesus Christ in flesh. I think it was Michael saying the other day, one day maybe we'll we'll spend time with Jesus and, and Jim and Stan around the same table. Jesus is in flesh. We'll spend time with Him. That will be a glorious day. And that is the hope of Incarnation Future. Spurgeon said about the incarnation of Jesus, infinite and an infant, eternal yet born of a woman, almighty yet hanging on a woman's breast, supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms, king of angels and yet the reputed son, uh, disputed son of Joseph, Heir of all things, and yet the carpenter's despised son. We praise God this morning and this season for the unfathomable riches of our paradoxical salvation. And we delight in God made flesh. Amen.